Future-proof gold from Newstalk. What can science tell us about what makes the body perfect for running, jumping and swimming? And how much does our environment and ethnicity determine your likely success at an elite level? It's a controversial subject, but we're joined now to discuss it by David Epstein, the author of the award-winning book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Hi, David. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. David, you know, there's been this idea that uh, the, the difference between what makes a great athlete and elite athlete is the amount of hours they put in. I mean, I, I do remember hearing David Beckham talk about how he was an average football player, but he was always out playing football. And lots of other elite sports men and women talk about this idea of being driven and, and yet not necessarily having innate talent. Where did you kind of crack on this particular issue? Well, not to say that I mean, practice is critically important and motivation is critically important, but there's a lot of building evidence suggesting that certain aspects of physiology are also critically important. That when everybody is starting to do pretty similar practice regimen, which is what's tending to occur now at top level sports, uh, sometimes they're really differentiated by things like their genetics. And in fact, what we're learning about genetics, so just as we learned in medical genetics, that because David Beckham and I have different genes involved in acetaminophen metabolism. He might need to take three Tylenol, while I only need to take one. Or maybe Tylenol doesn't work for him at all. The same thing is true for athletic training, where because of differences in our genes, people improve at different rates even when they're given the same exactly identical practice. And so it's this talent of trainability that's turning out to be a major separator between people who continue to progress and, and people who never never make it to the top. And that shouldn't really be surprising or controversial because uh, like many species, uh, different races have adapted to their environment somewhat slightly, of course, but some races would have different traits that may have been better adapted to a particular environment thousands of years ago. And of course, we're seeing, I suppose, some evidence of this in the winners of long distance and short distance running events for the past number of years. Absolutely. I mean, a great example is, so when I stayed in Kenya for a while, we think of Kenyans, you know, as being great marathoners. You go to Kenya and they say, wow, those, those Kalenjin tribe, those people are really talented. And that's a minority tribe in Kenya that makes up about 12% of the population. It's just a couple million people in the world. And they're basically all the pro runners. So to put their, their achievement in perspective, I think 14 Brits have run under two hours and 10 minutes in the marathon in history. That's four minutes and 58 seconds per mile pace. And 32 Kalenjin runners did that just in the October before I published the book, just in that one month. And one thing they have is they're, you know, when I was visiting them, I was crisscrossing the equator to their training sites, and their ancestry is basically at the lowest latitude possible in a very hot and dry climate, and that causes elongation of the limbs. It's like the reason why, it's for cooling, like the reason why your radiator has long coils to increase surface area compared to volume to let heat out. And because the leg is like a pendulum, the less weight there is at the extremity of it, the more energy efficient it is to swing. And so it's not that, that those Kalenjin runners compared to the rest of the world or even other Kenyans have more oxygen they can process. They just get more speed like a car with good economy for a given amount of fuel. Yeah, but wouldn't the availability of food necessitate how fast they would need to run so, for example, you may um, sweat more when you're running, and that might necessitate longer limbs, but if there's food all around you, then you don't need to run so much. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, so you don't see those good runners coming out of Nairobi, the big city, right? So when I was in the countryside in Kenya, so there's no such thing as a jogger in Kenya. Right? <laughs> People are either running, killing themselves, and training to be a professional, 
or they're running for transportation to the store or to school, or you're an idiot if you're running for any other reason, right? It's either training to be a professional or it's by necessity. And, you know, Finland was the world distance running powerhouse between World War I and World War II. And if the Western Rift Valley of Kenya turned into Finland economically tomorrow, that running boom would disappear overnight. So what do we know about the physiology of, of this particular tribe? You know, are their arms longer than ours? Are they more streamlined for running? Or is that a generalization? And can we associate their success with, with social attitudes to running exercise and movement in terms of, say, for example, nomadic movement? Well, it, it's a both. It's a both. So in terms of their physiology, there's a lot of variation in any population. It's just a question of, are there more people with a certain build on average, right? Like the best American marathoners also have this very long limbs relative to their body size kind of proportions. It's just more common in some populations than others. And another adaptation for people who, who have their ancestry at very low latitude and hot and dry climates is a very narrow hip girdle. And so it's a little more efficient when they place their feet one in front of the other. And a little bit more efficient translates to a, a big difference when you know, you're taking a lot of steps. And, and to your question about are their arms longer, absolutely. So my arms are about the same length as my height. That's like Leonardo's famous drawing. Yours are probably pretty close to that. But the average of these people is actually several inches longer arm span uh, mm. than their height. In fact, for certain diseases, like one called Marfan disease that causes elongation of the limbs, they have to have a completely different diagnostic criteria. Otherwise, every single one of them would look like they have Marfan syndrome compared to the way that you and I would get diagnosed because they're so elongated. David, I said at the, the top of this discussion that this shouldn't be something that's controversial. But even as I'm talking about it, you know, we are talking about physical differences between races. And I, it does make me sort of feel a little uncomfortable in my seat. And there is a sensitivity to this idea where, you know, you know some people say, well, black people are better at running or black people are better at basketball. Is there a sensitivity about how we talk about this in the sports world? Absolutely. Hugely so. And I think it's really important for that reason to recognize how little information we're actually imparting when we say black people. So that's a common trait of people who uh, evolved at, a cer at certain low latitudes because dark skin uh, is protective from equatorial sunlight. But think about, so every man who's been in an Olympic 100-meter final since the games that the U.S. boycotted in 1980 and a lot of other countries, whether his homeland has been Jamaica, Canada, uh, Great Britain, Portugal, uh, the United States, every single one of them has had their ancestry in a tiny area on the coast of West Africa, right? And those people who are overrepresented in the sprints could not be more physiologically different than the people across the continent who are overrepresented in endurance events. So just to say if you say a black person, you're basically encompassing all of the world's genetic variation almost mm. because the rest of us came so recently out of Africa and are just part of like a subset of that population. So yeah. it's only a small exaggeration to say if you wiped out every white person in the world tomorrow, you'd lose very little of the world's genetic variation. No, this is right. I mean, if we look at the diversity in even just a small area of Africa, there's way more diversity in there than there is in the entire continent that, that, you know, because we came from Africa, even just small parts of Africa in terms of their genetic differences are much greater than ours. Um, so what does that mean then for athletes who don't have these evolutionary traits, who aren't, for example, the West Africans who can sprint or the East Africans who are really good at running long distances? Well, first of all, one, one of the tricks is not to apply any of these averages to any individual, right? Whether it's a Christophe Lamette or there's, everyone should be 
uh, evaluated as an individual. Like no one should say, um, well, I'm white, so I can't run this marathon. It should be, do I have this build that we know works for the marathon? So I think first of all, we have to take people as individuals. But also I think one of the beautiful things about sport is it's this great uh, sort of stage for the display of human biological diversity. And in fact, as sports have gotten more competitive, the body types that are advantaged for any particular sport have gotten more different from any other sport. So, so you know, while basketball players have gotten taller, female elite gymnasts have shrunk from five foot three to four foot nine on average uh, over the last thirty years. Sorry, I put it, should put that in metric. But anyway, you know, because it makes it easier for them to spin. So it's not just that one body is better or not for sports. It's that this huge range of bodies can fit more specifically into one sport or another. So it's more important than ever to find that niche where your body's advantaged rather than disadvantaged. Like Michael Phelps is the exact opposite of one of those Kalenjin runners. For swimming, you want a long torso because it's like a long hull of a canoe that makes for speed going over the water. So he'd be a horrific marathoner, but he's advantaged in the pool. So it's really about finding where you fit, not about one being better than the other. Yeah, I mean, there are people who would say, you know, look, uh, look at swimming. There aren't a huge amount of Africans represented in, in the sport of swimming. But surely this is down to the access of swimming pools in, in somewhere like Africa. Surely we can't put everything down to genes and physiology. No, absolutely. If, if there were more swimming pools um, in African-American communities in the United States, Throughout Africa, there's no doubt that there would be more elite uh, swimmers from Africa and African-Americans from the United States, no doubt whatsoever. At the same time, I don't think you would see them overrepresented to the extent that we see in other sports. For one, because again, that long-limbed, short-torsoed build is disadvantaged in swimming. Uh, so it's, you won't see quite as many people on average with the appropriate build to reach the very top level. And also, a lot of Africans descend from areas that have been where evolution has been greatly, greatly affected by malaria. And they have certain adaptations that are protective against malaria. And in some cases, those adaptations, particularly we're talking about West Africans here, impair their ability to uh, create energy using oxygen in certain cases. So you tend not to see West Africans in events as they get longer that are purely aerobic endurance. So if you look in track and field or athletics, for example, above the 800 meters, you tend to see people from those high malaria regions disappearing because some of these protective uh, evolutionary traits for malaria can be a disadvantage for endurance. There must be a point at which these sort of advantages sort of peter out, right? Uh, a, a kind of a level where any more advantage in this particular area doesn't really help you win more races or more games. Yeah, well, I think it's, it kind of exposes the futility of the sort of nature versus nurture, right? So if everybody had the same genes, like if everybody were identical twins, then only training would separate them. And if everyone had the exact same training, then only genes would separate them. And so it's sort of a sliding scale. You know, every once in a while you see something like the Borlay twins, the 400-meter runners from Belgium, where they train the same and have the same genes. And I was at the finish line at the London Olympics when they finished, I think, 0.02 seconds apart. <laughs> uh, so when the genes and the training are the same, you get pretty similar outcomes. Um, let's talk a little bit then about how to add that little bit extra beyond nature, nurture, and environment, and the unnatural. There's been a lot of talk about doping in a number of sports, and I suppose a lot of questions will be asked about athletics um, mm -hmm. uh, starting this weekend. How difficult is it for scientists to kind of keep up with the doping when sometimes runners are going to the lengths of using their own blood that they made up in uh, high altitude and injecting it into themselves before running. I mean, how difficult is it to keep up with the science of those who really have that desire to win no matter what? 
Well, it's very difficult, not just not because it's so hard to keep track of the methods. Because the, the so the bi- athlete biological passport, um, you know, can detect some of that self blood transfusing. So that's like that's a great innovation in drug testing. Like I was amazed when Lance Armstrong made his comeback and he posted a bunch of his his drug tests online and said, "See, I haven't failed any of these." But if you look at them as a timeline, it's like the exact signature of transfusing your own blood. Oh, really? So, uh, he was ill-advised to post those because then people like me downloaded them. <laughs> um, but that said, even if they keep up with the methods, which they do a pretty good job of, you can't catch everybody. There's, so the way it's, it's built like the criminal justice system in a sense, the burden of proof is on the testers. And when athletes are using these hormones that, that are synthetic versions of things that occur naturally, like EPO or testosterone, the drug tests are based on probability. They say, okay, we see this interesting ratio of carbon atoms in this person's testosterone that doesn't look normal. It looks like this is from synthetic testosterone. But how abnormal does it have to be for us to say this is surely doping? And it's hard to ever know for mm. sure. It's hard to know because you're not directly detecting the drug like you would with cocaine or marijuana. And so they have to set the limits that separate a negative and a positive extremely conservatively to make sure they're not false positives. Mm. But that gives you it's a, rule a, of thumb. a lot of room. That's right. It gives you a lot of room to dope inside of that. So they're basically trading getting rid of false positives for saying, okay, we know there's going to be a fault, lot of false negatives. Right. At the moment, there are different methods, more of them becoming, as you say, a little bit more sophisticated in terms of giving that extra tiny competitive edge when it comes to race time. Uh, but what about these genetic differences that we're talking about? I mean, is it theoretically possible to, you know, to devise a gene therapy to give runners those missing genes that provide those specific proteins that make someone better at running, swimming, or jumping? It's definitely theoretically possible, and at the moment, I'd say there are traditional methods of doping that are so effective, I probably wouldn't move to gene therapy yet myself, but um, absolutely. So most of genetics has turned out to be way more complicated than we thought it would be 10 years ago when people thought there'd be, well, one gene for the shape of your nose and one gene for your height. Hmm. Well, it turns out that there are thousands of DNA variations that interact to create the differences in height between adults, not to mention also diet um, and environment and things like that. So it's really hard to engineer something like that. But, so for example, in in the sports gene, there are two chapters where I talk about single genes that have large effects. One that disables a protein that tells your muscles to stop growing. So this was identified in the so-called German super baby who the the nurses noticed had muscles right when he was born. And the other, uh, a mutation of the receptor that responds to EPO, you know, the the natural hormone, the one that people like Lance take synthetically. Mm. And that caused one athlete to have an overproduction of red blood cells, and he won seven Olympic medals, and his nephew had it, and he was a gold medalist too, cross-country skiing, and his niece had it, and she was a world junior champion, etc. Mm. And so anytime you have these single gene targets that can cause a large effect, while those are few and far between, that means you have yourself a gene therapy doping target because it's not that hard to engineer. Can we, you know, test our children for the likelihood of success at athletics and then, you know, target the ones with better training that may do particularly well? Or am I imagining an Orwellian um, Gattaca-like future that, um, <laughs> that doesn't bear any re- uh, reality with the real world? No, that's a great question because there are a lot of, co- I mean, at least once a month I get uh, something from a company, you know, asking for like some kind of endorsement um, of their genetic testing kit that they're going to give to parents to do exactly that. Really? And, yeah, exactly. You yep, were yep, joking. Definitely. No, no. Um, I have them stacked up on my desk, uh, like the kits, because they send me the kits, too, and say they'll test me for free. And I've done a lot of the testing just to see how it works, not because I buy into it, because, frankly, 
it shouldn't be done. So let me give you an example. There's one gene that we know called a, that all these test for called ACTN3. Hmm. And this gene codes for a protein found only in fast twitch muscle fibers. So if you don't have one of the so-called sprint versions, you're simply not going to be in the Olympic 100 meters, period. It's one piece of the puzzle. You know, there might be a thousand pieces of the puzzle, but you can't finish the puzzle without this piece. That said, 80% of the world has it anyway, and it doesn't tell you anything short of the elite level, and it only tells you if you won't be in the Olympic 100 meters, which you already know. Right? <laughs> a, a much better genetic I don't need test. a genetic test to tell me I'm not going to be in the Olympic 100 meters. That's right. You need a stopwatch, and hmm. that's the best genetic test for your kid is a stopwatch because genetics is, is avant-garde and sexy, but you're way better off directly detecting whatever you want to measure. Why look for height genes when you can use a tape measure? <laughs> right? We know a lot about physiology and how we can look at physiology to cater someone's training environment and training needs. And physiology is the combination of their genes and their environment, and that's what we really care about, not just their genes. What about this idea of making blood data public? I mean, you made a reference there to Lance Armstrong posting his data. I mean, should every athlete's data be made open source so that people can look at it, analyze it, and, and if there are nerds out there who want to you know, like, add two and two together and get four, that you know, this is in the public interest, that if these people are competing for internationally recognized prizes, that surely these things should be fully transparent. You know, I'm of two minds about it because obviously the more transparency, the better. And I would love to do some of my own analytics on the blood data, so I'd love to have it all available so I could play around with it. At the same time, I think there are reasons not to make it all public. And some of that, I think, is because, again, going back to how these tests like Biological Passport are based on probabilities and fluctuations, not on directly detecting the drugs or its breakdown products. And because of that, there actually are a lot of normal reasons why athletes will have strange tests when they're clean. Pregnancy, uh, altitude tense, how hydrated they happen to be when the test was taken. So, you know, one part of me wants to say, like, yeah, let's put it all out there. Like, what's the harm? At the same time, 100% there would be innocent athletes who would have some strange test results. In fact, that's why one part of the biological passport is when uh, someone has a really strange result, they actually get a chance to explain it and document, you know, what altitude were they at and things like that. So I think But, but if that information is out there yeah. and you get global information from all athletes, surely you'll get enough data that you'll be able to say, yeah, fair enough. I mean, surely if all of the data is out there, then then those sort of things that are slight bumps here and there will be explicable. Yeah, I mean, if we also want to require female athletes to disclose all their pregnancies and things like that, then, yeah. you know, yes. And personally, I'd love to see it, but I also would, if I were in the position, I, I wouldn't be requiring them to do that. Really interesting speaking with you. David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene and investigative reporter at ProPublica. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. 